Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of June 11th, 2018. On this week's show, we'll be joined by ESPN's Dave McMiniman to talk about what's next for LeBron James after the Cavs got swept out of the NBA Finals, and whether the Golden State Warriors are too good. Bruce Arena, the former head coach of the U.S. men's national soccer team, will also be here to discuss why and how the United States missed the World Cup for the first time since 1986. And our colleague Jason DeLeon, the producer of Trumpcast, will join for a conversation about who to root for in the World Cup. Jason has very strong feelings about Peru. I am in New York this week. Stefan Fatsis, the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, is in our studio in Washington, D.C. How will that affect our team chemistry this week, Stefan? Is it fair to blame Jeff Cameron if this week's show is bad? Yes, I'm sitting in your chair, so that could affect team chemistry oh my God. also. You're going to have hell to pay when I get back to Washington. Yeah. Um, just, I know that kind of like injuring Stefan or being really mean to him could affect team the chemistry. perception of the listeners out there. But I just wanted to express my gratitude. Last week, I asked for folks to help us out by reviewing the show on iTunes. And people gave us 78 new five-star reviews, 31 of which were written reviews. I really appreciated YHK Reviews was the username for saying that we are far better than the Orvis Fly Fishing Podcast, which is really deep cut reference, Stefan. It is. That goes back to the early days of the program when we were in a mortal battle with the Orvis Fly Fishing Podcast. (laughs) I don't think it ever ended. We just, it's been a, it's been on a hiatus. It's like the Korean Um, War. (laughs) Still ongoing. Don't, uh, don't feel safe, Orvis. Uh, if you like what we do here, and if you hate the Orvis Fly Fishing Podcast, go to iTunes and give us a rating and a review. It helps new people discover the show, which is what allows us to keep delivering Orvis-destroying content every week. So thanks so much uh, for those reviews. On Friday night in Cleveland, the Golden State Warriors crushed the Cavaliers 108-85 to to win the 2018 NBA title in a four-game sweep and clinch their third championship in four years. A short while later, a photo emerged of the Warriors emerging from their team plane, with Steph Curry holding the Larry O'Brien Trophy, Kevin Durant holding his finals MVP award, and Draymond Green holding a bag of hot Cheetos. The Golden State Warriors, they truly have it all. Uh, And in about a month or so, the Cleveland Cavaliers might get left holding the bag Joining us now to chat about where LeBron James's children will be going to school next year is a man whose phone is surely covered with Cheeto dust. It's ESPN's Dave McMenamin. How's it going, Dave? <laughs> it's, it's going okay. I didn't know that you had the inside scoop on what the uh, the Cavs press room looks like because we do have boxes of Uts products provided to us by Cavs PR, and cheese doodles are passed around that room sometimes. <laughs> I thought that the Draymond Green 
uh, Instagram about how he'd been depriving himself of hot Cheetos for two months. It was like his version of LeBron going dark on social media. I found that incredibly moving that like this is the sacrifice that he's willing to make to get a title is to give up the hot Cheetos that he loves so dearly. It was touching. It's a placebo effect, though. Maybe you didn't do anything to the game, but you are uh, putting yourself there mentally uh, to, to convince yourself that, that you wanted extra more. I wanted to ask you about LeBron's hand. Immediately after Game 4, it came out that he'd busted his hand punching something after the Cavs' now infamous Game 1 loss. Or and he someone? Did his post- uh, Never been cleared up. What? Uh, well, that's why we want to ask Dave about yeah. it. He did, he did his post-game press conference wearing a soft cast on that hand. I'm hoping you can clear this up for us. I've heard he punched a whiteboard or a blackboard. Was it a whiteboard or a blackboard or some third item? And also, did you know about this hand injury or have any sense of it before the news came out after game four? It was a whiteboard. Um, if you guys ah. ever be so lucky to go into the... <laughs> Visitors locker room at Oracle Arena. There's a large whiteboard. It's almost it's so big. It's almost like a wall partition that is hard to miss when you enter in into that um, that space. Brian Winhorst, I think, was the one who said blackboard, and I think you just got his wires mixed because there's a lot <laughs> wow, of stuff throwing going on. your colleague it, under the bus. Wow. Oh no no no! I, I'm just uh, you know, letting them know. Let me be clear uh, how we got to this conversation. Um, <laughs> and as far as uh, me knowing about it, let's just say, you know, LeBron was seen walking around at practice holding a tennis ball and flexing his hand. I mean, there was, had I picked up on that as some major clue, uh, perhaps I, you could say, yes, I knew about it. You've learned a lesson. Anytime you see anyone with a tennis ball, you know that that... <laughs> is going to become like an instant Chiron on, uh, on ESPN. Um, Windhorst, who you mentioned, is a very well-sourced individual. He wrote a piece in which he said, I have no idea what LeBron is going to do. Um, he essentially threw his hands in the air. He waved them like he just didn't care. He said, nobody knows where LeBron's going to go and what he's going to do. Um, but I feel like there's a consensus, Dave, among, you know, I feel this way. I feel like most fans feel this way, people who don't know anything, that LeBron is going to leave Cleveland. Um, And I'm wondering if, despite the fact that we really don't know, we don't have any solid information about anything, do you feel like that, A, do you feel like that consensus is correct among Cavs fans? And B, do you feel like among um, the Cavs and among players that they feel like it's more likely than not that he's going to leave? I would agree that the sentiment that's out there gave this playoff run some degree of finality. Do I, I think that's accurate? And am I ruling the Cavs out? Absolutely not. Um, part of that is the fact that LeBron, the one thing he's really said on the record uh, prior to his Game 4 press conference was he told Joe Varden at Cleveland.com late in the regular season that my decision has come down to winning and family. And when you consider his family, it is based in Northeast Ohio. When he is on the road for work, his wife's family, his in-laws, help raise his children. And that's no small thing. (laughs) And then you add in the fact that his oldest son, LeBron James Jr., he's going to be in eighth grade next year. If he surveys all the options that pop up between now and the beginning of July, and none of them seem to be so 
compelling to choose. You can just kick the can down the road a year, opt in uh, to this contract, or sign another one-plus-one deal with the Cavs, which they surely would offer him if that's what he wanted. And then you make the decision again next summer when his son will then be going into high school as a freshman, and maybe that's a more natural you know, breaking reset point for the family to move somewhere. A lot of this is predicated on the belief outside of LeBron's circle that there's no way that he would be willing to consider playing with these numbskulls again. And that what drives LeBron is being surrounded by enough talent to help him win championships again. And look, obviously every athlete wants that. They want to have a chance to win. Isn't it possible that LeBron James, 33 years old, parent of children, kid going in, you know, eighth grade, going into high school, may actually look at the horizon and say, you know, I've had a pretty great career. I've made eight straight finals. I'm going to play for three, four, five more years. What matters to me is being in a comfortable situation. And if I can influence the owner, which I should be able to, though that's a separate issue with Dan Gilbert in Cleveland, that this could be at least a palatable situation. He wouldn't be the first mega great athlete to ride out his career and not be a championship contender. Yeah, very true. Uh, and you add in the fact that Dan Gilbert did a podcast within the last week where he said, you know, LeBron's not really one of our, my employees, more like a partner. And that could be some intentional planting of that message going into all the decisions that are going to have to be made. And you think about that LeBron said last year during the playoffs that I have nothing left to prove. And that kind of gets back to your point about, yeah, he, he's a competitive guy. And for the optics, he should be saying after game four that, hey, if anybody watched me play basketball this last right. season knows that I'm not ready to ride off into the sunset, I'm still about winning championships. But championships don't have to be the be-all, end-all at this point. No, and, and, not, and, and, I, think, and that's the, I think you're right. And I think the point there is also that what's his vision? Is his vision to be a hired gun employee to help some team win, or is he trying to build something bigger? And I think that factors into his thinking as well. Does he want to be an equity partner in a franchise? And, and I think he could do that in other places other than the Cleveland Cavaliers, though. Uh, like, let's be real here. Sure. Um, like, you know, the Los Angeles Lakers have gone through uh, all sorts of, of change in the last year and a half with their ownership group with Jeannie Buss kind of pushing out her siblings um, to take over and Magic Johnson coming back into the fold. Uh, Magic Johnson was a player who was offered equity from his owner and um, Jerry Buss. I don't think that's lost on him that that's a card that he can play in the recruitment of LeBron James. Now, under the CBA, you can't do that. You right. can't just say, we're going to offer you a max contract plus a ownership stake. But there are conversations that could be had um, that would allude to potential future dealings of that sort. I mean, it's what we've seen Miami Heat do. And, you know, Dwayne Wade, again, knows LeBron as well as anybody. And his comments were, I think this is going to be a lifestyle decision. There are no really great slam dunk options from a roster fit standpoint. I mean, the most common potential destinations we're hearing and let me know if I'm leaving one out are Philly, um, 
Houston and LA. Am I am I leaving one out, Dave? I, I would include the Cavs, and I would also include. Oh yeah, yeah. This is more Stipulated. me extracting the the message um, from what LeBron was seemingly putting out there in the media session prior to Game Four and then post Game Four when he talks about basketball IQ and um, wanting to be around smart players who can, you know, kind of see the game happening before they get to that, that possession. I include the San Antonio Spurs, and I, we haven't heard a lot about them as of late, but again, he's a guy who he, he craves organizational discipline and tone and culture, and Yes, it wouldn't necessarily be the entire Spurs roster. That would be this intelligent um, group that, that he's speaking about. But obviously from R.C. Buford to Greg Popovich on down, that, that's kind of the, that's the example that, that they tried to lead. I, I think the, the point here, Dave, is that LeBron, wherever he goes, stands apart. I mean, Kevin Durant still feels like the odd man out on the Warriors, right? Like he's the guy that doesn't belong. LeBron is always the player who does belong. He is the son to his teammates, planets, except, of course, if he's playing with Kyrie Irving because, you know, the earth is flat. Um, So wherever he goes, it feels weird. And I think that's one of the issues with with LeBron. It's like everything that compliments LeBron feels wrong. It's almost like we've become accustomed after this season to feel like LeBron needs to be so much better than everybody else because what we was driving the narrative was could he do this on his own? I feel like you really took Kevin Durant's comments to Michael Lee to heart with that opinion. I don't really agree with that at all. Kevin Durant, I don't know if you're aware of him, said that I feel like playing well it's easy to look like the best player on a team when there's not good players around right. you. Right, he said that, yes. Very self-serving for his decision and also ridiculous. Um, LeBron James was playing with peers in their prime in Miami. or certainly one peer in his prime at just about the same level in Dwayne Wade. I mean, are we forgetting that? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Recency bias. <laughs> Right, and just as recent as last year with Kyrie Irving on the team, you know, Kyrie Irving for about close to three-quarters of the season or 60% of the season was the Cavs' leading scorer. Um, and it wasn't like it was a struggle for the ball. Uh, you know, now there was struggle in personality and et cetera, et cetera, but LeBron was trying to empower him to be at the same level of him. He was saying, hey, I think the guy's a future MVP in this league. So... Uh, I don't really buy that. I don't think that's going to be a problem. I think it was after game three, or uh, I guess more accurately before game four, that LeBron said in a press conference that if you just stack the Warriors roster up next to the Cavs roster, the Warriors are better, and said, like, you know, let's be real or let's be honest or something, and went through the Warriors for All-Stars. I guess I'm curious. uh, Obviously, the Warriors... Um, were way better than than the Cavs from a from a roster standpoint. Did you get the sense from folks in the organization or just from your conversations around the league that people in the NBA think that they're too good? Because that's a conversation that's that fans have been having. What is that conversation like in the league? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, when I speak to, I guess, media executive types, there's a great deal of fatigue there. 
um, just because of the product overall that the league has to offer with the Warriors is unlike anything really that's been there before because of the nature of them putting this team together with that salary cap bubble that occurred uh, when the TV deal was put into place. And uh, it's unprecedented, and, and it's led to, you know, obviously, a competition imbalance. Um, despite them going to a Game 7, and you know, et cetera, et cetera, uh, that, that perception exists. Um, now, you know, do... Are, are the you know it, I, I think where people are cautious about it is no one wants to be looked at as uncompetitive or not having that dog in them to think they they can bring these guys down, and also no one wants to be kind of whining about it because they would love to be in that same position. Right, as fans, we loved this when it was Bill Russell, you know, tied to the Celtics or the Lakers in the 70s and 80s. I mean, look, the NBA is defined by dominance and runs like this. We only seem to be having a problem with it now when it's the players who have gained power and agency over um, their futures and their careers and ultimately wrong, wrong, over wrong. their franchises <laughs> and the league generally. I How don't so? agree with that at all. Why? Because I feel like Craig Fearman wrote a, what I thought was a really good piece for Slate, um, last week about Durant and, and his decision and looking back at it. And Craig pointed out that I think a lot of fans and I think most writers have an incredibly sophisticated view of uh, Durant's choice and feel like very sympathetic to the idea that he should be allowed to go where he wants to go and feel like free agency uh, is a great thing and that players being empowered is a great thing. And yet they feel like Durant going to the Golden State made the NBA less fun. And I don't think it has to do with people being upset about Durant choosing. I think people are just upset with the choice that he made and what the downstream effects were. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I don't, I, I, I don't disagree, but I feel like it's a little bit speaking out both sides of your mouth. Or, or whoever, the, the columnist you're citing, speaking out both sides of his mouth. Because. What do you mean? Because you can't say in one breath, hey, I'm happy for this guy to be able to have free will, and the other breath say, hey, but I wish he chose something else. Right, I want his free will to make the league more balanced. Well, you know what? That 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 seems totally consistent to me. I don't don't understand why that's talking out of both sides of your mouth. I think if you're you're on board with free agency, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that every choice that a player makes, you have to be like, great choice, that makes everything better. But I also don't think that Durant's choice created some sort of historical abnormality in the NBA. The NBA Well, here's an edge case. Would Would you think it'd be great if LeBron went to Golden State now? I'd be psyched if LeBron and Durant decided to go somewhere together. You, you dodged the question. I mean, if LeBron went to Golden State and you just had all the well, LeBron, best talent LeBron, on the same team. If LeBron then, were going to go to Golden State, they'd have to because of the salary cap that's no, he designed takes the minimum. to protect. He takes the minimum no, in my hypothetical. Minimum. Okay, he takes the minimum yeah. in my hypothetical. Sure, I'd watch those guys play. Look, what Dave was telling us before, and this is from somebody, a Cavs insider, was that LeBron played in Oakland as an AAU player. He's dropping hints that LeBron is going to Golden State. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we want to we want to end, Dave, by um, asking you about your future because your decision, like, as it were, your 
Well, it's really fascinating to me that you've been covering the Cavs uh, since LeBron went back, right? Mm-hmm. And you would not be covering the Cavs if LeBron had not been on the Cavs, right? That is very true. Um, it, how does it feel to have your kind of life and your you know career so tied up with one individual like that? And co- sort of how are you thinking about um, you know your future as LeBron's thinking about his? It's it's been um, unlike any other career challenge I've had because it's hard not to have a personal or emotional investment to it. And um, I've grown really close with two of the other primary beat guys here in, in Cleveland and Joe Varden of Cleveland.com and Jason Lloyd, the athletic, the difference between the three of us is that both those guys are Ohio natives and like they own houses here and their family is here and their children grow up here. I don't have any of that. I just have the story and, and that's been, Obviously, the the story of the Cavs making four straight finals, but really the story when you cover the Cavs is LeBron James. And ESPN wanting me here with a national perspective on a local beat, I I understand the way we do coverage. Uh, I don't think there's going to be interest in Cavs coverage if LeBron's not here anymore. Well, good luck to you and good luck to uh, LeBron. And um, we'll be having you on from Oakland, I think. I think we had figured it out. Um, it was it was a productive conversation. Dave McMenamin covers uh, LeBron James and the Cavaliers for now for ESPN. Thanks, as always, for coming on the show, Dave. Thanks, guys. Before we get to our interview with Bruce Arena, a heads up that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus today, our colleague Jason DeLeon, who's going to join us in a little bit to talk about the World Cup, will also chat with us about sports betting and how someone who bets on games already is going to be affected by the legalization of the practice. While we do not offer gambling advice on this show, I want you to know that I have the Warriors and the over. I also want you to know that if you want to hear that conversation with Jason, you should join Slate Plus for just $35 a year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Bruce Arena was the head coach of the U.S. men's national soccer team for what are arguably the best and worst performances in the history of the team. The best was a quarterfinals run in the 2002 World Cup that ended a missed handball call from beating Germany and advancing to the Final Four. The worst was, of course, the 2-1 to loss to Trinidad and Tobago last October that prevented the United States from qualifying for the World Cup Finals for the first time since 1986. Bruce Arena has now written a book. It is titled What's Wrong With Us, the U.S. is in capital letters, a coach's blunt take on the state of American soccer after a lifetime on the touchline. Hi, Bruce. Thank you for talking with us. Thank you for having me. Bruce, you were hired to replace Jurgen Klinsmann after the team lost its first two games of the final round of World Cup qualifying. 
You had nine months and eight games to turn it around. In the book, you explain game by game what happened in those final eight. Um, given the perspective of hindsight, why do you think you're talking to us today instead of getting the team ready to play its first game at the World Cup in Russia? Well, certainly we didn't get the result on the last day in Trinidad. And if we'd secured one point, we'd be in Russia right now. So I would say this one thing. I would like to correct uh, all the comments out there about the the players on the team. They were a great group to work with. They were extremely dedicated. Uh, we were behind the eight ball when we started in, in, uh, in qualifying in March of twenty. Uh, 17, and uh, the team had a 14-game unbeaten streak. Uh, it'd be hard for me to understand why anyone would say anyone would say they weren't dedicated to the national team program. Uh, we ended the year with a record of 10 wins, two losses, and six draws, and we fell short. In the last four games, we needed to play better and didn't. If we had secured another point, as I said, we'd be in Russia, but. They were a great group of players to work with. The staff did a great job, and uh, unfortunately, we fell short. And you know, we we never overcame um, being behind uh, from the first two games. But it's not an excuse. We knew the predicament we were in, uh, and we all felt that it was going to go down to the last game, and it did. And we fell short. You also write in the book, and you've said this repeatedly over the years, that whether it's journalists or fans that you don't really understand what's going on in the dynamic of a team and really any sport unless you're a part of that team. And I think you also related to that, that uh, you're not really knowing what the dynamic was inside previous national teams when you weren't the coach. Um, And this kind of came up, um, a lot of the criticism after the Trinidad game was why wasn't Jeff Cameron on the field? Um, Why was Omar Gonzalez playing, especially after Gonzalez allowed an own goal. And later, more information came out that, you know, Cameron uh, had potentially been insubordinate. Can you clarify what was going on with him? And do you feel like that's an example of people not understanding what's going on inside a team? Well, sure. Just a couple things. Uh, First of all, uh, we did not qualify for the World Cup because uh, Jeff Cameron did play or didn't play or made comments. Uh, we previously to the Trinidad game beat Panama by four goals in Orlando and then traveled to Trinidad for the last game. It's not uncommon in any sport that uh, you play the same lineup the next game, and we chose to do that for a variety of reasons and fell short. Now, if we'd made three or four changes for that game and lost, then the next day you would be saying, why did you make three or four changes? So you know, right. it's easy to be a Monday morning quarterback. We felt that the group that played in Orlando did an outstanding job and, and got us three very important points, and they all checked out to be ready to play for the game in Trinidad, and we decided to go with that group. Throughout qualifying, we had a lot of issues in, in terms of uh, who to play, who not to play, that kind of thing. The situation with Jeff was pretty simple. He, uh, uh, he played against Costa Rica and played particularly well. Uh, he gave us a good 30 minutes uh, against Honduras. Uh, he went back to his club team and was injured again and missed most of September. So he was told when he came in, uh, we were going to stick with the team that we played in the Gold Cup, that won the Gold Cup. And uh, those center backs were Matt Beasler and 
uh, Omar Gonzalez. I want, I want to pivot away from the, uh, the, the Trinidad game, Bruce, and uh, go, go back in time a little bit. You write in the book that when you took over, you looked at the rosters that Klinsman had used in previous games and, quote, had a difficult time finding rhyme or reason in the choices that had been made. At another point, you say that uh, Jurgen pushed the program forward in many ways, but the only, example, the only example you were able to come up with is that they made travel a little bit more comfortable for the team. Other accounts have talk, talked about a much bigger salvation project um, when you came aboard, that the team had a, a sometimes toxic culture. Toxic was a word that uh, was used in a piece uh, that was written on The Ringer the other day um, that had developed under Klinsman, inconsistencies, demoralized players, paternalistic behavior, some inexplicable decisions dating to before the 2014 World Cup, including dumping Landon Donovan, who had played for you both on the national team and in Los Angeles. Um, what do you think went wrong with the program? And when you came aboard, how much work did you have to do to try to reorient the, the focus of the team? Well, there was, a, there was a lot of work with that. Uh, you know, if we'd qualified for the World Cup, the book would have included a lot of my travel to Europe to see the players and, and try to, you know, bring the, the team closer together. But I would say this, as I, uh, as I said in the beginning of the interview, I saw nothing toxic in my nine months with the team. Uh, the players had good spirit. They co- cooperated. They supported the program. They worked real hard. Uh, what happened previously, again, uh, all my experience in, in coaching over the years, again, if you're not inside a team, you, you don't know. And I wasn't inside that team. So there, there's no point in me commenting. I mean, that, that, that's what, you know, obviously the journalists uh, like to do. But none of us actually know. And uh, all I know is when I took over, uh, it was a great group of players, and 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 they did a very good job in trying to move us forward in 2017. I was a little disappointed you didn't say Monday morning center backing in response to my question, but um, we can move past that. And uh, I think there's a tension because I get the sense that you feel like it's healthy to have people kind of both in U.S. soccer and outside being really, you know, critical about uh, what's going on with the program. It shows that people care, and that is something that's really important. But if people don't know what's going on with the program or if comments are based on ignorance or what you perceive to be, like, uninformed, then how does that help the program? How do you see that that tension being well, resolved well, let me in the upcoming years? You, you- you see social media every day, whether it's in politics, in show business, in sport. How are you going to how are you going to correct that? It's crazy. Anything we say, uh, generally, uh, people don't care. They go about and give their own opinions. What I would not do is certainly uh, comment on uh, the previous uh, regime with Jurgen Klinsmann because I, I didn't know firsthand. So there's no point in me commenting on that. Inside our team, there weren't any huge, huge issues. I see, you know, there were comments after we lost to Costa Rica that we had uh, tattooed millionaires, which is a, a disgraceful way to label players that have worked uh, their whole life to be where they were in the sport. And we lost the game. Uh, you talk in the book more broadly about what you label the American problem um, mm-hmm. in, in terms of us moving forward as a, as a soccer nation. How would you define it 
and, and, and what steps would you list as the most important things that need to happen over the next four years and over the next 40 years? Well, I, I still think we haven't come, grip, uh, come to grips with the fact that uh, we don't understand really our, our, our country and our soccer culture. We have a huge country, and we can't look to any other countries in the world. Right now, I guess we have uh, Dutch people in our coaching education. We now have a, a, a Dutch-American general manager, Ernie, who I Ernie think Stewart. will do an outstanding job. And we look at Holland. Holland, I can drive to Holland from one end to the other probably in five or six hours. Okay? You can ad- adapt the style of play very easily and, uh, and be very acceptable. In the United States, we have different time zones, different cultures, different climates, a lot of different things. And it's, a, it's an unbelievably challenging task. And we need to keep working on a, a system and a way about doing our business that's different than anybody else. And all we have done over the years is try to pick and mimic other countries in the world. And in the end, when we're finally where we need to be, it's going to be because we've designed our own way to go about our business. Over the weekend in France, um, the U.S. men's national team uh, got a draw uh, against one of the World Cup favorites, one-to-one, and a friendly. There's a lot of um, young players on the field, guys like uh, Josh Sargent, Weston McKinney, Tyler Adams, um, sort of the next generation of American soccer, potentially. I think one of the smartest things you uh, have done in your career was how you managed, you know, young talent like Landon Donovan and always being cautious about, you know, we don't want to give these guys too much pub and and pump them up too quickly, like to keep expectations realistic. Um, given that kind of it seems like the hope of, of the program is on these younger players, how do you think that we should think about, you know, the guys I just mentioned and about a program that seems to be getting younger. Well, obviously they they they're going to be blended in uh during the next cycle with uh, some veteran players as well and th- there's going to have to be the right mix and match and uh those young players need to get on the field with their club teams and start playing on a full-time basis and have prominent roles. And as you go through the cycle from 2019 to the next World Cup, Hopefully, everyone grows together. But clearly, uh, it, it's time for some young players to step forward. And hopefully, as I indicated in the book, right now, uh, there aren't many young players playing in Major League Soccer. So over the next couple of years, I'm hopeful that some of our younger players get on the field and we give them opportunities internationally. I think one thing you can't really uh, put too much credence on is looking at these uh, friendly games right now. Sure. They don't mean a heck of a lot. They're completely different than playing in official competitions. Sure. Yeah. And so we need to have uh, a group of players prepared for the next cycle, whether it's uh, starting with the Gold Cup next year and then through World Cup qualifying. And that's going to take a lot of work. 
and uh, we have a lot of we have a lot of young players that need to get a lot more games in and a lot more experience at the international level. You've been critical of Major League Soccer and U.S. Soccer because the top positions there haven't been filled by people with technical expertise about the game. Um, you, you wrote in the book, uh, basically the same people have remained in control of the sport over the past 20 years. The new federation president was a former number two in the federation, so not a lot of change there. You mentioned the hiring of Ernie Stewart, former U.S. national team player, um, as the general manager for the program, which was an idea that you, you brought up in the book. What else do you think needs to happen, Bruce? Um, one, one of the, the main things that you focus on is, is, is defending Major League Soccer at the same time that you criticize the, the leadership of it as a development pipeline. Um, you note in the book that there's been a decline in the number of U.S.-born players on, on Major League Soccer rosters. Um, why do you think keeping players in Major League Soccer and creating that as a development route works better than, say, or maybe it just works in tandem with getting top talent into Europe? Well, look at the number of players we have in Europe and, 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 and the roles those players play with their club teams. Um, you, you mentioned Jeff Cameron. So Jeff Cameron went through the second half of his season at Stoke and didn't play. They had the worst defensive record in the EPL and were relegated. Bobby Wood at Hamburg, relegated, didn't play as much in the second half of the season. Fabian Johnson and Muchen Gladbach uh, played very little. John Brooks at, at uh, Werder Bremen missed most of the season. Christian Pulisic had a, a good year at Dortmund. The, the best probably American player next to Christian in Europe uh, last year was Tim Ream at, at Fulham, played on a full-time basis. Weston McKinney broke in a little bit at, at Schalke, so he's starting to get some time there, and you could see his development. However, n nowhere else virtually in Europe do we have players playing on first teams. We have a number of players that play in reserve teams, second teams, third teams. So where is the best league for, for young players to get on the field and, and hopefully play. Wouldn't we think it's our domestic league? However, we have not created a mechanism to allow that to happen. I'm curious, Bruce, how you're going to watch the World Cup. Um, are you going to be following uh, any teams or players that you've coached in particular? And also, are you going to be rooting for the success of um, the Americans' uh, CONCACAF rivals? Well, first of all, I, I like, you know, I know the Mexican coach fairly well. I know a number of players from Mexico. I like them. They're really good guys. I'd, I'd like to see them be successful. I think uh, all the CONCACAF teams are going to have a hard time getting through group play. Mexico has a real difficult opening game, obviously, with Germany. Therefore, games two and three are going to be critically important if they hope to get out of group play. I think Panama in my view, has no chance of getting out of group play. And Costa Rica has a chance in their group. Uh, so hopefully at the end of group play, we have at least one CONCACAF team through. Uh, for me personally, uh, you know, I, I love watching the World Cup like uh, anybody else. And uh, uh, I, I think Germany has an outstanding team. I'm looking forward to seeing the team that uh, Brazil ends up putting on the field, and it's always fun to watch the home team because they, they have an advantage playing at home. So, you know, Russia has uh, a fairly easy group and an easy opening game, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they 
get out of group play, and things will be interesting. But there's some good teams. Traditionally, teams in those hemispheres win. So, so, so you'd like to think that Germany may have an advantage in, in this World Cup, but you know how World Cups are. You, you never know. What do you want to do next, Bruce? Uh, I haven't decided at this point. I'd, I'd love to continue to have some kind of uh, position in the sport in our country. Uh, I think at this point I, I could really make a difference in management, whether it's at a, at a league level, a, a club level, a federation level. Uh, and, I, and I know, I have no doubt in my mind, if I, if I continued coaching, I could build a program that can compete for an MLS Cup as well. So uh, I'm going to look at what the options are this year and hopefully uh, have an opportunity to do something in, in, in 2019. If that doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. Bruce Arena is the former head coach of the United States men's national soccer team. He's got a new book out. It's titled What's Wrong With Us or U.S.? A coach's blunt take on the state of American soccer after a lifetime on the touchline. Bruce, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, we just got done talking about the worst day in U.S. soccer history, October 10th, 2017, (laughs) the day the U.S. lost to Trinidad and got itself knocked out of the World Cup thanks to a pair of results in other games that made fans in Panama and Honduras very happy. That same day was also the final match day for World Cup qualifying in South America, where the top four teams make it to the World Cup and the fifth qualifies for an intercontinental playoff. Going into that final day, Peru was tied with Lionel Messi in Argentina for fifth place, three points behind Uruguay in second, and just one point ahead of Paraguay in seventh. On October 10th, Peru drew against Colombia, while Chile lost to Brazil and Paraguay lost to Venezuela. That set of results meant Peru would be going to its first World Cup since 1982. If it beat New Zealand in a playoff which it did. We wouldn't be here if that didn't happen. (laughs) Joining us now for a conversation about Peru and other teams you should root for in Russia is Jason DeLeon, who, as the producer of Slate's Trumpcast, has been involved in a lot of conversations about Russia. Oh, yes. (laughs) I didn't even think of that. Yeah, I've been involved in many conversations about the, the state of our union and also of the state of the Russian Kremlin. Yeah. Interest uh, in our union, so to speak. <laughs> yes. uh, it's great to have you here, Jason. And to give folks a little bit of background, your mom is Peruvian. Uh, she is. And you grew up in Florida not feeling like a huge connection to the Peruvian national team. Today, you're wearing the like beautiful Peruvian shirt with the I, red sash. I, I so you're feeling a, the connection. I will talk about the red sash. But yes, I grew up in, in Florida. Uh, didn't have a ton of connection to the Peruvian side of like my, my blood, so to speak. Um, I was always more connected to the Dominican side because they're a bit louder. <laughs> the Dominican side loves to cheer about baseball and they're very loud. Um, my Peruvian side is a little bit more quiet, but when the game is on, everybody gets crazy hype. 
<laughs> crazy hype. My grandfather, who's just like a gardener, gets insanely <laughs> hyped for it. Um, and that's how I just kind of made that connection. It was like around 2012 when Peru made a run in the Copa America. And they started showing them on like Univision and that stuff. And I was game in. So just throughout this qualifying campaign, you've been so excited. I was like worried that you were going <laughs> to have your heart broken. But just tell us about the experience of watching, um, you know, whether it was that Dragons Columbia or the playoff right. against New Zealand. What did that feel like? Uh, and just you're you're a younger gentleman. Like 1982 was not in your lifetime. Like this, no. is, a, this is a once in a lifetime thing for this you. This is the first time in my life to peruse in the World Cup. Um so I, I want to go back to that thing, uh, the game against Columbia. That's October 10th. Um, I was at a bar in Brooklyn solo because I, I don't know a ton of Peruvian people in New York City. Uh, I was at the bar. I'm watching the American fans to my right, like literally just having a complete meltdown. <laughs> and I'm in complete elation. I was like, I can't, I'm watching the results. I'm confused a little bit because I'm like, wait, Brazil, they're up two. Do we need them to score one more? Which they do in the 93rd minute. Uh, which is, again, another insane thing that happened. Um, and so I'm watching, and I, I'm just having the complete opposite experience of almost everybody in that bar. Yeah, Me and, like, three other Peruvian people were just like, <laughs> this is happening. How is it happening right now? Um, and probably one of the, the biggest moments was uh, the free kick that Paulo Guerrero took, I believe, in the 78th, 78th minute of that game, something like that. But Guerrero had a... A kick 25 yards out outside the box. Paulo Guerrero, I'll, I'll say, is the forward for Peru, the captain. He's everything for them. Um, the all-time leading goal scorer as well. He has this indirect free kick. And you could see it's an indirect free kick because the referee has his hand up. And Guerrero is aiming to put it right on goal. And the announcer is losing his mind. And he's saying, indirecto, Paulo, indirecto, indirecto, as he's trying to like scream at him through the television or something. And then Paulo Guerrero shoots it on net. Ospina, the goal for the goalie for Colombia, touches it touches his fingertip. It goes in, and that goal is the goal that sent us through the World Cup. That's insane so because that, if Ospina just doesn't touch it, it's if, if Ospina doesn't touch it, we're out. You're out. We're out. Right. It's yes. crazy. Now let's talk about Paulo Guerrero for a second. Um, Absolutely. He, he uh, tested positive after a World Cup qualifying game for cocaine. Um, was suspended for 14 months, which would have ruled him out of the World Cup. Um, it was a metabolite of cocaine. Um, well, and look, who he, among us has not tested positive for cocaine after a World metabolite Cup of cocaine? Not cocaine. Uh, a metabolite. I will say, so this yes. is the backstory here is fascinating, though, because the impression might be that Paulo Guerrero was snorting coke, but it seems completely no, 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 plausible no, no. to me that obviously he wasn't. And there's a, this cultural backstory to why Guerrero probably yes. tested positive that makes me love Peru even more. Yes, because, all right, so this is the thing. I went to Peru, I want to say in 2002. That was the only time I've ever been in Peru. But uh, I had asthma. And when you go up into the Andes Mountains, they give you te de coca, which is cocaine tea essentially which is to like get your blood levels and everything adjusted um and this is like a common thing you just drink teta coca in, in peru and it, yes it does have traces of cocaine in it so to speak so you will test like if i they tested me in 2002 as a child i would have tested positive as well um but Guerrero, i i feel like he probably had the same situation he had some teta coca and um yeah <laughs> tested positive and then all of a sudden he's out of the world cup but 
um, about two weeks ago, the the ban was lifted. And By a court in not, Switzerland, yeah. Not lifted, so to speak, but post, like Post-bond. they're allowing He's him to play He's still going to have tournament. to serve, but he is being allowed to play. Um, yes. And it's, you know, I read a, a, a Twitter thread by Luis Miguel Echegare, who was an editor at Sports <laughs> Illustrated, um, and Peruvian, I believe, or at least loves Peru. Um, and the, the story he tells about the tea is it's even more heartwarming, just like how ingrained in the culture Te de Coca is and yep. how this should be overlooked. And it, you know, <laughs> it really, it's a, it's a really interesting sort of drug story. Uh, it's also just like the most, it, it's, it's crazy. incredibly satisfying to have. <laughs> you feel so at ease after you have some Tay de Coca. <laughs> yeah. Super. I watched Hey Arnold with some Tay de Coca <laughs> and it was a, and it was an experience. Oh my God. Peru so, should host the world cup and Tay de Coca should be the official drink <laughs> of the world. Cup. Um, so Daniel Alarcon, who's a great, uh, writer, Peruvian, oh, yes. Um, wrote a piece for The New Yorker about watching uh, the game against New Zealand, the one that sent him to the World Cup. In Lima. In Lima. It was a really great piece. And he talks about seeing folks and hearing folks after the game um, doing this chant. And I wanted you to, to, Do you want me to read, to the, read chant? the chant. For I us. can read the chant. Ole, 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 ola. Nos vamos al mundial. Que chucha va a pasar. <laughs> and what does that mean? Uh, we're going to the World Cup. What the fuck is going to happen? <laughs> so what the fuck is going to happen, Jason? Uh, that was a long setup for me to ask what. How that was you think totally Peru worth it, do. though, Josh. Well done. How, how do you think Peru is going to do? And that tell is... us who's in the group and, and sort of All how right. you're feeling. So Peru is going into this World Cup. In the group is France, which is uh, a, tough, a tough out for anybody. Ah, playing the, for the United States just tied them. Come on. Uh, <laughs> relax. <laughs> uh, so we have France, uh, Australia's in that group, and so is Denmark. So these that that's our group. Um, Peru right now ranked, I believe, either 10th or 11th in the world. I, don't quote me on that. Uh, quote me on it. I'm actually on a podcast for sure. Quote me on it, <laughs> 10th or 11th. Um, I will say Saturday is Peru's first game this coming Saturday. They play Denmark in Mordovia, and that is basically the World Cup for us. Yeah. That yeah. first game. If I was a better podcast host, I would have noted that the World Cup is like starting on Thursday. Uh, but thank you for providing that. that World setup. Cup starts this week, guys. Yes. Yeah, but I I've read previews and they all kind of get at that point, Stefan, that like Peru and Denmark is going to be one of the key games of the World Cup. Yeah, they, isn't they, that, they, they isn't that per- what's great about the World Cup? Yes! Is it's like Peru, Peru and Denmark. Denmark. Having it out. Peru and Denmark yeah. are ranked 11th and 12th in the world right now, according to FIFA's bullshit rankings. That's what it is, yeah. 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 Can you transition us, Stefan, just into, like, as somebody who is a, a big devotee of the U.S. men's national team, like, how are you um, choosing which teams to root for? And is it really possible to do that before the tournament or do you kind of just need to see which teams catch your fancy once i think you they can you can pick eight or ten teams before the tournament and then <laughs> pick one that does the best um peru does you know i'm not going to say peru entirely but the jerseys and you didn't give you haven't talked about the jerseys i mean the sash josh is staring me down right now he's <laughs> looking at this jersey the like jerseys wow. are awesome didn't roger bennett in his new book rank the peru world cup jersey as number one of world cup number jerseys? one all time yeah all time yeah. yeah, I actually have I have the quote here uh, from Roger <laughs> Bennett. 
He's he, prepared. It's oh, in, I'm prepared. He keeps it in his wallet. <laughs> <laughs> because I think about it all the time. Um, he, the quote is, um, if soccer were scored like figure skating and points were factored in for style, Peru would, without a doubt, have instantly been hailed as a world champion. It's a great red diagonal sash. I mean, it's it, it, inarguable. From the left shoulder to the right hip, a nice little red sash, which is presidential because the president also wears a sash. <laughs> That's on point. All right, Stefan, back All to right. you. Um, I'm going to be in Iceland for part of the tournament, and we'll be talking about that at another time on this podcast. Um, so, you know, Iceland. But that's Iceland is such a predictable choice at this point. Denmark Trendy. is very cute, but now I'm not on the Denmark bandwagon because of Peru. Iran mm-hmm. or Mexico would be a nice fuck you to Trump to bring it back to you, Jason. Um, this is true. This is true. Senegal, I like. They've got Mane, great player, but also their nickname, the Lions of Taranga, which is, I mean, it's sort of the Peruvian sash. Of nicknames. <laughs> um, yeah. Belgium is this year's Netherlands for me. You know, yeah. small, Northern European, you know. I felt like Belgium was trendy in 2014, though. Really? But they're it's, so it's good this year. I mean, Eden Hazard, Kevin De Bruyne, Lukaku. I mean, they could make All it to the finals. All those guys were there in 2014. I know, but now they could make it to the finals. And there's no Netherlands, is my point. The Netherlands is not in the tournament. So yes. who are the Netherlands this time? It's Belgium. I'm going to go with a very traditional, and I know this is, might annoy you, Jason, but I want to see Lionel Messi win the World Cup. I want Argentina to win. They won in 78 and 86. They lost in the final in 2014, won to nothing. Um, this feels like an Ovechkin parallel, not to make it too local angly, but I like it when transcendent or stars or too Russian. I like it when transcendent stars win championships deservedly. And for me, Messi feels like this would be a wonderful sports outcome. And they also have pretty great jerseys too. Uh, nah. uh, <laughs> I'm, gonna, eh, I'm the jerseys. Uh, I will say. I feel like uh, a lot of people are going to go with either Argentina or Belgium as like they're like, ooh, that's a sleeper pick. That could be fun. I didn't say it was a sleeper. Uh, that was like low. Key. I like how that was like low key. That was a like, low key ragging on Stefan. Yeah. I like that. Oh that's no, that's not low key. I'm ragging on <laughs> <Yeah>. Stefan. <laughs> um, but like, if you want to, I, I know I for sure was rooting for World uh, for uh, the United States in the last World Cup because um, Peru was not in it, um, and, and I was rooting for like, Greece in the last World Cup. <laughs> And Peru very much has like a similar kind of thing about them where it's just like, here's a middling team that will like play up or down to their competition in some kind of way. Mm-hmm. And I feel like uh, if, if, you, if you're trying to go for like this, this team that could have like a miracle run, Peru is a really, really solid bet to like really get in on early. Well, there's not going to be any pushing you off of the Peru bandwagon. So there's not. you're going to diss whoever not. we Absolutely pick. Not. Josh, who, who would you like to root for? Who are you going well, the one team that, that we haven't mentioned so far that I think is going to be a lot of people's sentimental favorite is Egypt. Um, similar, long, dry spell um, since they've been in the tournament. I believe it was since 1990. You might recall that Bob Bradley, former coach of the U.S. team, almost led them to the World Cup in 2014. They've got Mo Salah, um, who just set the Premier League goal-scoring record. 25 years old at the height of his power scored 71% of Egypt's goals during qualifying, which is insane. Um, unfortunately picked up the shoulder injury in the champions league final. I just saw in the daily mail, which picked I up the shoulder my... injury was mugged. Mugged. Yeah. Mauled. Mauled. Okay. 
Yeah, corrected. I appreciate that. Thank you for jumping in. Got mauled in the Champions League final. Has a brutally uh, beaten up shoulder. Uh, the D- Daily Mail had uh, a little video of a fan going up to take a selfie with Salah and like mm-hmm. putting his arm around him and him like grimacing. I don't think that's a great <laughs> sign for him. But Egypt also has a 45-year-old goalie. Yeah. Um, yeah. It would be so great for that country to do well um, in the tournament. And I think if if they win and they have like a realistic shot to come out of their group, they're they do. I'm gonna, I'm gonna piss Saudi on. Arabia. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna piss on your Russia might get out of their group, Jason, because it's Russia, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Uruguay. Mm-hmm. I think Egypt and Uruguay are the two clear favorites there. I agree. No, I agree. The home country always does well, and it'll be rigged except in for Russia's South favor. Africa. I mean, well, Russia South Africa is, won their opening game, right? They did. Yeah. I mean, didn't get this out of is group such. Back. This is such fair point, but this is such like a. I guess the the other game I'll be interested to watch because I feel like Russia, Saudi Arabia is the opening game. There is no way that Russia will be allowed to lose that game. I feel like given given all that we know about FIFA and Russia, but I think Russia Egypt will be a fascinating game because I think you can argue that if there's a winner in that game, whoever wins that is going to go through. Um, I will I will be fascinated to see what happens. There. I got my eyes open for a ton of fixes in this World <laughs> Cup. My eyes are peeled looking for the fixes. All right. Let's end with um, just how you're feeling. Like Saturday, you mentioned, is the Denmark game. Like it's something that you've been like thinking about and dreaming about for a really long time. Are you like excited or just like so nervous that you like can't bear to even like be sitting upright right and now. When, and, incre- and where will you be? What will you? You'll obviously be wearing the jersey, but how yeah. much Te de Coca will you be drinking? <laughs> drinking before the game? I will. I will be drinking uh, quite a bit. Um, I actually this past Saturday went to watch the last friendly, uh, which Peru played Sweden and they had a zero zero tie. Um, but nice little result for us. Same Nordic kind of style kind of <laughs> thing uh, that we'll have against Denmark. Um, but I went to this bar banter in Williamsburg. If any hang up and listeners are in the Williamsburg area, I'll be at banter watching Peru at noon with a bunch of other Peruvians that I met there who we are all in a text message chain now, nervously oh, texting great. one another. Oh, nice. Um, so, yeah, that's what I'm going to be doing Saturday. I'm nervous. I'm excited. I'm going to have friends there. And hopefully I won't be crying at the end of the night. <laughs> on that note, no, I just wanted to make one final point, which is that just based on our conversation, it's like really sweet how this has brought you and your family closer together. Um, and I think it's like a very like treacly thing to say, but like, that's what this, it's, that's what the sport does. And it's true. It's true. It's absolutely true. My actually, uh, my, so <laughs> my, uh, my little sister is 16 and for her 16th birthday, my mom has brought her out to Europe and they're going to be in like the vicinity, but my aunt is actually going to the game on Saturday in Russia um, and so like, yeah, this is, this is moves. Like this is making a ton of moves in the family. Um, and I'm excited. And I, hopefully if we pull off a W against Denmark, the first thing I'm going to do is get on a call with my grandfather. That's great. Um, Jason DeLeon is a producer of Trumpcast. You can see him on Saturday, uh, at a bar in Brooklyn. And if Peru is losing, just approach cautiously. Jason, thank you very much. Thanks, Josh. Uh, Jason, you neglected to mention the assist that Peru got during the qualifying campaign. You want to give us a little bit of detail on that? 
so yes, they did get an assist. Uh, what ended up happening is that Peru lost to Bolivia 2 nothing initially in one of the World Cup qualifiers back in September 2016, around that time. Uh, FIFA went back and awarded Peru a 3 nothing victory because Bolivia played an ineligible player during that game. Uh, FIFA always making the right decisions. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now it is time for After Balls and Stefan. Like, we've got our Te de Coca. We're, like, really hyped for... Peru and the World Cup now. Uh, what do you got for our afterball name? Why have me introduce the name of the afterball, Josh, when we could have this announcer on this FIFA video introduce the name? Here we go. There can be little doubt that Teofilo Kubias is quite rightly regarded as Peru's greatest ever footballer. Their all-time leading goal scorer, Kubias is one of only two players to score five goals in two separate FIFA World Cups. Over the years, he's received countless individual accolades and was at the heart of his national team's most successful period. Yeah, Teofilo Cubillas was awesome. He was the, the, the Pele of Peru in the 70s. Uh, go look at the videos of him scoring in the 1970 World Cup and the 78 World Cup. He scored uh, five in each. So Teofilo Cubillas. Were you the Pele of Westchester? My one goal as a uh, as a varsity soccer player did not <laughs> so qualify yes. <laughs> me. So yes is the answer to that. That's right. Stefan, what is your Teofilo Kubias? All right, trigger warning here because I'm going to play a clip of Tony Kornheiser and Michael Wilbon talking last month on their ESPN show, Pardon the Interruption, about players and fans of the Washington Capitals celebrating after the team beat its longtime nemesis, the Pittsburgh Penguins, in the second round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. I promise that the subject of this afterball will not be entirely the disposable misguided opinions of Kornheiser and Wilbon and people like them, because that's not the point I want to make. Let's listen to the clip. I think the self-satisfaction of this, the, Tampa, Stop. What, is, what is Tampa, Tampa Bay? What I used to say, people are, and I haven't said this in a while, but what I used to say and get in trouble for it locally, Washington, D.C. is a minor league sports town. Yeah. It's because of opinions and attitudes like that. I think people and are I happy. trust think they're happy. that there are enough people starting in that locker room oh, I'm not where the guys are the record and said, I don't want to hear any fans the or they are lame and minor league in this town I'm who say <laughs> winning two series and beating Pittsburgh to go one and five in the Ovechkin era or whatever it is is enough. Let me That's, go back away. That's Miami and Atlanta life. Of course, the Caps last week beat the Vegas Golden Knights four games to one to win their first Stanley Cup. And since then, Wilbon has been getting an earful. Fans have pointed out how in the Washington Post when he worked there and on his TV show, he called for, because calling for is what people with important sports opinions do, he called for the Capitals to trade their best player, the Stanley Cup hero Alex Ovechkin in 2010, 2014, in 2016, and probably other times too. Fans are also pointing out schadenfreudedly how Wilbon in that clip 
revived his long-running criticism of Washington as a minor league sports town. I should also point out that Kornheiser for 30 years called the Capitals choking dogs because they hadn't won a Stanley Cup, which is hard to do, and sports don't always work out the way you want them to, and players who are playing now don't really give a shit about players whom they don't know and what they did 20 years ago or 40 or 100. What's happened in the days since the Caps won has been a foam middle finger directed at every big media personality who, for all of their platforms and access and talent and experience, fundamentally fail to understand what makes sports great. Yes, Caps fans celebrated after beating Pittsburgh, and then during the final two rounds, they packed the corporate name arena where the team plays its home games to watch its away games, and those who couldn't get in crammed the streets around the arena to watch on a giant screen in front of the National Portrait Gallery. And after they won, they stayed there, thousands of them stayed there all night and hugged and drank and cried and poured out their hearts to people like our friend Dan Steinberg of the Washington Post. Dan will hate that I'm bringing him up here, but I tweeted that he should take a lap with the cup himself. Dan started writing a sports blog for the paper after the 2006 Winter Olympics in Italy. And what he did with that blog was gently redefine how fans might want to think about sports. He chronicled all the silly shit that happens on the periphery of sports, in the locker room, in the parking lot, in the stands, at charity events, on the radio. He was a reality check on the Post's very serious coverage about devastating losses and important trade scenarios. And the message was consistent. Who wins games is important. Sure, whatever. But sports are about what people get from them, players and fans. Go read Dan's post-cup story about the fans, which is headlined, So This Is What It Feels Like. It captures every correct sentiment about why sports can matter. And also scroll Dan's Twitter feed, DC Sports Bog. It's basically a live stream of Alex Ovechkin and his teammates' endless pub crawl of the city celebrating the Stanley Cup title with Washington fans. I've lived here for 15 years and elsewhere for 40 more, and I've never seen anything like it. It has been the purest and sweetest and honestest and also drunkest celebration of a sports championship ever. Ovi airballing a first pitch at a Nationals game and then drinking for nine innings. Ovi doing a keg stand with the cup. Players swimming in a fountain in Georgetown. Even the team running into Jared and Ivanka at Cafe Milano couldn't kill the buzz. Even another big sports media guy, Keith Olbermann, writing on Twitter, they beat an expansion team, all caps expansion, in response to Washington Nationals broadcaster and ex-player F.P. Santangelo writing, this is the best thing ever, in response to Dan sharing a video mashup of the Caps and fans singing We Are the Champions. Even that couldn't kill the buzz. I started with what I think is a downer of a clip. The one I just referenced is way better. Josh, what's your Teofilo Cubias? After this weekend, the count is Rafael Nadal, French Open titles, 11, and Thoroughbreds, who've won the Triple Crown, 13. I like how we just, like, elegantly checked off all of the major sporting events uh, of the weekend in our afterball, Stefan. Yeah, that, that's our goal here. I've got to confess, though, 
<laughs> that I did not watch the Belmont Stakes. I did not watch Justify win the Triple Crown. American Pharaoh winning it a few years ago made that feat seem a little meh. It's a little meh. Mm-hmm. But way to go, Justify. You're a horse, so I'm sure you're not upset that I didn't watch. Um, I'm sure he's probably that not happy some, that he won either. So there's that. I'm sure. I'm sure some of the other Triple Crown winning horses are also not going to be upset when I say I haven't heard of them at all because they're horses and also they're dead. So that's a that's a twofer. Um, I know, obviously, affirmed. You got to know affirmed. Seattle Slough is mm-hmm. the greatest horse name ever. I think. Um, and Secretariat and Citation and War Admiral. And I've also kind of heard of Gallant Fox and Sir Barton, I would say. Um, the ones I knew nothing about, Stefan, were 1935 winner Omaha. Have you heard of Omaha? No. Omaha. Uh, 1941's Whirlaway, which I maybe have heard of, but if I'm being honest, I'd say I probably have not heard of Whirlaway. I think I've heard of Whirlaway. You've heard of Whirlaway. All right. What about Count Fleet? No. What about Count Chocula? Yes. All right. And the one I'm going to focus on uh, today is 1946 Triple Crown winner Assault, which is a really strong horse name. Mm-hmm. You must admit, Assault. So I was looking back. Um, almost, as first, good, almost as good as Gronkowski, <laughs> who finished Assault. second in the Belmont. Uh, good job, Gronk. Um, so assault, as I was like looking at um, the kind of basic facts of the Assault story, I was like, A, surprised I didn't know any of this, and B, surprised, and like maybe you'll correct me, but there has not been a major assault motion picture. I don't know anything about assault. But so here are the things that you need to know about uh, this uh, this great horse. Eddie R. Caro, the famous jockey, uh, was one of assault's riders and described the horse as being on the delicate side. It was like a very lame kind of injured horse. Stefan, this is what you need for an inspirational sports movie. It got a hoof deformity uh, after reportedly stepping on a stake and not like the good kind of stake that you would like Mm want to step on because it would be like nice and tender. This is like the kind that goes on the ground. Bad kind of stake. It was known as the club footed comet because it walked with a limp, but apparently did not gallop. With a limp, also, according to the Wikipedia entry, had kidney, splint bone, fetlock, knee, and bleeding problems. Not great horse horse problems, but Assault overcame uh, these odds. Assault is also from Texas, is the only uh, Triple Crown winner to come from Texas, not one of these uh, Kentuckian horses. And then after Assault retired, you know, that that's kind of the, the time to shine for uh, the thoroughbreds, right, Stefan? Mm-hmm. You retire get put out uh, you know, with, uh, with the mares, you get mated. Uh, assault was sterile. Wow. No, uh, no offspring. Wow. Poor Assault. Assault uh, didn't assault know went... that he was sterile, though, so it's probably okay. <laughs> uh, assault went back to racing uh, and won a few more times, lived to 28, which is like a nice, good thoroughbred age, uh, buried in Texas. Interesting life. I was glad that I... Uh, read a little bit about Assault, and I look forward to uh, the Assault movie. You know what else is interesting about Assault? Assault's brother was a horse named Airlift, who was the subject of W.C. Hines's classic piece of deadline writing in the Sun newspaper in 1949 that was headlined Death of a Racehorse. It was about that tragic race where Airlift 
breaks a leg and has to be put down and Heinz watches. It's an incredible piece of sports writing. So yeah, assault, all those medical problems, airlift, tragic family. Uh, that is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Ford. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. Also give us your reviews, uh, give us uh, some of those stars and uh, write up uh, some nice things about the show. It's helpful. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zamo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. All about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.